Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Chit Heads. My guest today is Laura Amazzone. Laura is a teacher, writer, intuitive healer, yogini, and initiated priestess in the Shakta Tantra and Kaula Sri Vidya traditions of India and Nepal. She is the author of the award-winning book, Goddess Durga and Sacred Female Power. She has published numerous articles within the fields of Hinduism, Tantra, and women's spirituality in many different encyclopedias, anthologies, journals, and also online publications. Laura teaches in the Yoga Philosophy Program at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles. She offers a diverse array of authentic and undiluted lineage-based rituals and spiritual practices, as well as pilgrimages to Nepal that promote spiritual empowerment and divine embodiment. So with that, hello, Laura. Thanks so much for joining me today. Hello, Jacob. Thank you for having me here. So uh, before we talk about the wonderful work that you do, particularly as it relates to uh, goddess, um, the goddess practices and lineages, I'd just love to hear a little bit about your own personal story and what led you to this work that you do. Hmm, that's a big question. Let's see. I think it mainly it was just growing up um, in a very conservative Episcopalian and Catholic household in the Midwest. And... Mm really always having an interest in, you know, the, the mystical, the unseen, and not finding what I was seeking um, in the religious traditions within which I grew up. And um, also just kind of questioning where was the feminine, where was the, the female? Yeah. And um, so that kind of opened up, you know, a larger quest to to find that and always feeling like that was a missing piece. And so... Um, eventually even um, ended up in a graduate program specifically focusing on women and religion. But I've always been interested in women's spiritual history, women's stories, and especially how that um, has supported or helped to inform my own consciousness, my own understanding of my place in the world. And, you know, in my upbringing, too, I grew up within a very um, violent, abusive household. So I'd, obviously that factored in and my own sense of disempowerment and a lot of health issues that came out of that. And in my um, own personal journey, there was a lot of just Again, searching for comfort, searching for solace, searching for a refuge. And that started coming to me, you know, at a pretty early age through visions, through dreams of this dark, you know, divine mother. And I didn't know, I didn't have any sense of what that was or what that meant. And then, of course, my own studies opened that more and more and um, just revealed, you know, that there was indeed something greater that I had been intuiting all along and kind of gave a language more for yeah. this. Yeah. Presence. So, so, the, so the presence, did you, before you kind of had the the concepts and the, the understanding that allowed you to kind of filter that experience into something you might call the divine feminine, did you experience it as something feminine or was that more something that looking back you realized that's what it was? That's a good question. No, I did experience it as feminine. I definitely experienced because it always was this um, kind of shadowy female figure that was very strong, very fierce, but she wasn't frightening right. to me. You know, I would see her in dreams or I would have these, especially when I was in altered states from the pain, you know, from just certain illnesses and physical experiences I was having sort of almost like hallucinogenic, you know, yeah. vision 
of her. So there was that. And then when I, you know, started doing more the, the research, even before I got into the program, I mean, I was amazed to find there was this whole wealth of material that women had been um, researching on the goddess and ancient culture around the world. And even discovering that within the Judeo-Christian traditions, there she was. There is, mm. you know, feminine, there's a goddess, there's, you know, Ma. And um, so, yeah, there was a lot of always a lot of synchronicities or a lot of displays that fascinated me. Yeah. And obviously, just given the difficulty in my own personal life or just the physical struggles, not only from the family, you know, that I was growing up with, but just with my health. Again, this was a refuge and just showed me there was something else beyond the suffering that I was in. It was something beyond, you know, that was much greater. Yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. So I'm interested actually to hear, you know, you're saying that you found the feminine in the Christian tradition. Are you referring to, um, Mary, or or did you find some presence of the feminine in other aspects of the Christian tradition? Um, absolutely, Mary. Well, I'll fast forward many, many years into like um, it was in the late '90s when I started my program at the California Graduate Program at the Master's Program at the California Institute of Integral Studies, mm -hmm. and I was getting a degree in philosophy and religion with an emphasis in women's spirituality and Asian comparative studies, yeah. and one of the first courses I took was with um, Charlene Spretnik, and it was called Mary, Goddess of the West. And looking at Mary, you know, within Christianity, but also tracing her back to Isis and the whole Isis um, mythology and history in Egypt, and then even going into even earlier pre-Christian um, cultures. And... Um, so it was, you know, in the beginning, Mary and Sophia, of course, these different names that we came to know within that tradition, the Christian tradition, but really earlier forms of her that had been worshipped for thousands and thousands of years. And I discovered in that program, too, that actually there was, you know, over 25,000 years of history, women's spiritual history that I had never even heard about and mm. that was this and I mean even starting with you may be familiar with one of the earlier works within this field Merlin Stone when God was a woman even just posing that question what would it be like if God were female and ultimately coming to feel that God is as of course beyond gender but having a representation of the divine that was more resonant with my own experience or my own you know self-image um, or even looking at empowered models where I know in all the ways I didn't feel empowered as a female in this culture was just absolutely mind blowing and, and incredible. And there's just there's so much material out there, so many incredible um, feminist spirituality for mothers who have done this work, not only within these, um, you know, the, the more orthodox traditions but outside of that and looking even into indigenous culture and looking into neolithic times paleolithic times and showing there has always been this presence of the divine mother in fact one of the uh, former directors of the women's spirituality program um, her name's Lucia Chiavola Birnbaum speaks about the dark mother and says the oldest divinity on the planet is African and is female and her symbol is the pubic V. Mm. Mm. 
So, you know, it's interesting, and I want to go back to something that you kind of um, mentioned in passing, which is this idea of, you know, the iconography and, and you know, from one perspective, this is beyond gender and, and, and sort of this is where I, I, I feel like I'm sort of coming to this place now where the iconography is, is sort of taking on a new kind of significance where, you know, I grew up in, similar to you in a kind of um, Judeo-Christian household that was very conservative and obviously the 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 representation of god was very patriarchal um and then you know when i left that behind when i did sort of um regain a sense of divinity then for me it had to be abstract it had to be sort of beyond these dualistic categories but but now i i feel like things have shifted and i'm i'm more receptive so i'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about what is the significance of the iconography like what do we have to gain from, you know, images, representations of divinity that are gendered? Okay, that's a great question. So, where do we even start with yeah. that? <laughs> right. So let's just start with these incredible um, goddess figurines we find in the Paleolithic, Neolithic, even going back to what um, is the Dan Danube River civilization or what the archaeologist, linguist, um, Maria Gimbutas, I don't know if you're familiar with her work called Old Europe, where there is this predominance of female figurines and, and evidence of a completely different social structure. We can talk about that more later, but it is important to acknowledge that in these ancient cultures that women were at the center, doesn't mean it was exclusive of men, but there was um, no evidence of, of fortification or any weapons and so forth. And there is a predominance of these female figurines that are, are large-breasted, often have large bellies, their um, genitals are really pronounced, and there is an honoring, an emphasis of, um, of, of celebration of the female body. And I think what is, for me personally has been so empowering when you know, my body has felt so objectified, you know, the female body is so objectified and exploited and maligned, or even um, the power of our sexuality, the ways that that has been co-opted and really ex exploited, all the violence. So to see that here's this ancient culture, not just one region, we can go all over the world and see this, it was you know, absolutely incredible just to, to have that experience and to see, you know, that mirroring of the body. And especially because I also was struggling with a lot of endometriosis, you know, so a lot of gynecological issues and severe pain around my sexuality. So for one, there's that and to see, okay, yes, the, the divine is represented, is honored as female. And then just looking at her, all the thousands and thousands of representations of her. Again, in you know every culture, and looking at the similarities, you know whether it is in the honoring of the body, or you know the, her breasts, her genitalia, um, even some of the tools that this this understanding of her connection to the cycles, to the lunar cycle, to the agricultural cycle, to the earth, the harvest. So also feeling that, you know, sense of meaning and belonging within the, the universe. And then to come into, you know, what I've specialized in and what has been 
uh, very significant for me is studying and relating to the iconography of these um, Shakta Tantric goddesses yes. that originally, yes. though, are not anthropomorphized. They're worshipped as a stone in the earth, or maybe the stone is mm. rubbed red, or there's blood offerings given to it. And you know, Vicky Nobles had pointed, Vicky Noble had pointed out in her book Shakti Woman, quoting another. Um, scholar that the original blood on the altar was menstrual blood. This is the only blood that can be offered without inflicting a wound. And then even just looking into the power of the menstrual cycle, again, here is a whole other arena where women feel just so so disempowered or ashamed yeah. or call, calling the cycle or monthly cycle a curse. And then here we have this connection to the lunar cycle, you know, or, the, or to the Oceans. I mean, it's just fascinating to see the reverence for that. So originally, just to not go off too much of a tangent on that, you have these anthropomorphic forms, or she's worshipped as a tree, or you see within the trees very what looks like very specific female imagery, very yonic formations, or um, again, just this honoring of our interrelationship with the vegetative world or the animal world or the earth and so there's that and then how she became more stylized more anthropomorphized and here we have these representations both fierce and benevolent but the fierce I find are very useful in seeing these divine um, females holding these weapons, but they're not literal weapons. These are spiritual symbols. It's right. an iconography for our spiritual journey, a journey of consciousness, evolution of consciousness. And um, there's, and I, I think there's definitely ways that they've been appropriated and misinterpreted, and there's always a danger in that. But really, at the core, is this honoring of power. And, you know, and it's not only, obviously, a female power. It's about Shakti, which is mm -hmm. a dynamic, animating power, and Shakti in union with the Shiva energy, these, you know, the masculine, these complementary energies that are inherent of all, in all existence. And, yes, maybe we tend to understand Shakti as more female or feminine or Shiva as more masculine, but if you think even within the Taoist traditions, you have yin-yang, it's the reverse, that the yin is the, the white, the feminine, is really what we're referring to as the, the Shiva qualities, those receptive mm. qualities. So it's an opportunity to, to really deconstruct a lot of the conditioning that we have around what it means to be quote-unquote male, female, to be in this world, to really connect with the divine, like you, you had mentioned, going out and needing to have an abstract, you know, connection. And for me, it's been about how do I embody this within myself, not looking outside to the source, but both looking, you know, outside and within. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So now, since you're, we're sort of segueing into this kind of nicely, I'd love to talk a little bit um, more directly about goddess durga since you did write this beautiful book goddess durga and sacred female power so who is durga just for those who are maybe new and can you tell us maybe one of the myths of durga to help us understand her significance sure absolutely so goddess durga is a goddess of strength she's a goddess of courage she is a She's known as the remover of fears, the reliever of difficulties, the uh, she alleviates suffering in all its forms. 
And her myth is actually uh, is fascinating and completely relevant for these times. Um, and it's actually a myth that dates back to the fifth century of the common era. It's from um, the text, the Devi Mahatmyam. And the story goes, just in, in brief, kind of in general, is that there were these demonic forces that were destroying the equilibrium of all the worlds. And they had this particular demon in charge of it all had received some boons and um, meaning that he had received kind of these, these blessings that he would be undefeatable. And mm -hmm. he had asked specifically that no one could defeat him. Um, and then when the creator God who was offering him these boons said, okay, no one will, what about a woman? And he said very arrogantly, oh, that won't be a problem. <laughs> so essentially, essentially what happens is he's going along, you know, just creating all this havoc and the male gods are all powerless. They're not, they're not able to stop this demon and this, all the violence and bloodshed. And they know that it's ultimately the power of the divine mother, the supreme consciousness, which from this orientation, the supreme is, was, is viewed as the divine mother. It's only her power. It's only her fierce compassion that can stop this demon from his destruction. So they call her forth and she comes because we know that about Durga. She's, she's very immediate. She actually even says at the end of her myth, if you're ever in distress, if you're ever um, in need, you know, or, or suffering anyway, call on me and, and I will come. So they call on her and then there's a series of battles. It's actually 13 chapters, fascinating, of these battles that she engages in uh, with these demons. Mm -hmm. Now, who are the demons ultimately? You can understand this myth from you know a lot of different perspectives, but really on a, uh, what interests me is to look at them as the afflicted ego, right. as that we each have this. Well, it may be mirrored in the outer world, or we may say, oh, okay, that's exactly what's happening now, but really looking within and seeing how our own ignorance, our own greed, our own hatred, our own, but you name it, is really what this Divine Mother is coming, you know, that we're calling on her for, to come and transform. And while this is a battle that she's engaging in, you know, and it's this epic battle, it's amazing, too, and, and the way that it's expressed, um, ultimately, this is, it's, it's, again, not, you know, representative of outer violence or warfare. It's just about our, our own struggles. And we see even that in the beginning of the story, her name isn't Durga. It's actually, she has many other names, Ambika, Chandika, Parvati, and so forth. And it's the demon whose name is Durgama. And mm. at the end of the story, she says, I want to be called Durga now to show that ultimately these demons are a part of me. This is a part of my play. And she absorbs these demonic forces, the Asuras, back into herself to restore peace and justice uh, in the world again. Wow, that's beautiful. So one thing that I really found interesting about your book was that, you know, it has this kind of polemical spirit. And we're, we're already kind of talking about this in that, you know, you discuss the goddess as a way of cultivating female empowerment. And I know your your thoughts have sort of shifted. So I'd love to hear you maybe first talk just about kind of your intentions behind 
um, writing the book as a means for cultivating female empowerment uh, based on your own experience. And then maybe we can sort of segue into how your thoughts on this have shifted since writing the book. Okay. Um, so originally when I was writing it, of course, you know, it was very much coming out of my own personal um, experiences as I shared with struggles around my body, health, being female in this culture. Um, but also as a scholar, too, was, was, you know, really asking again and again, where are the women, especially within these uh, tantric traditions, classical yeah. tantric traditions, and where are their stories? And yes, we know of Lala, you know, within the Shaivite tradition, her poetry, we know a little bit about her, or Mirabai, or, but so often there's these references to the yoginis and so little, even the, the, the whole, the chakras of the yoginis, very little work that has been done academic research on them and so I'm just curious what was their experience so often we're hearing it through the male view or the Brahmanic lens of um, you know them telling the the myths or having the practices and needing the female practitioner to achieve liberation in some of the practices or at least some of the texts are positing that but what about her experience you know yeah. what about the female experience and that that was not there, and it was so heavily male-oriented. I wanted to address that and also bring in my personal experience of what it meant to be you know, in touch with my own power in this way. And when I wrote this book, Durga was not in you know, a household word, word at all. She wasn't even in the yoga community. It took me nine years to get this book published. It came out of my master's thesis, which had been... Um, completed in 2001. Mm. So I think for me, it was also just trying to fill a gap to or provide a different perspective and to show that, um, you know, just sort of not even to show, but really to, to pose the question, like, where are the women? What is women's experience? What would it mean if we related differently or understood um, what it meant to be a practitioner or to be engaging with this tradition and not in a way that was appropriating or disrespectful, but really to um, honor the the powers, you know, and, and embody the powers that are coming through the teachings. And it was very hard, too, to find um, female teachers, too, at that time. And I just that was another area that was so dominated by the male experience. Yeah. And... Um, so that was, you know, kind of what had opened me into writing this and exploring it and um, sharing it in the way that I did. And I mean, of course, it's, you know, it's not about only the female experience, but just that the female experience has been so eclipsed, so, right. you know, disrespected, not included, all of that, that I wanted to offer that. Now it's very interesting to see how she is becoming more and more known and embraced both mm. by male and female practitioners. I do feel that there is a way that all these goddesses within um, these traditions a lot of times are used, appropriated for more selfish means or that instant gratification that we know, yeah. you know, so conditioned. <laughs> in the west and it's like okay go to lakshmi you want a husband you want you know you want money you want a new car you want to be famous call on lakshmi and it's it's in my experience in my view it's it's not the right approach mm. and um 
And we're talking about goddess. We're talking about absolute consciousness. This isn't something that um, is light, you know, that it's really about having respect and understanding what these paths are about. And even Tantra and the way that Tantra has been appropriated and um, is really not on is not understood in some of the more new age circles that it's really a path, uh, a challenging path. It's not a path for mainstream culture. It's not a path for everyone. And I don't even say that from an elitist yeah. um, position. It's about being able to confront your shit, right? Like, uh, yeah. really uh, your own ignorance and really being able to um, embrace and transform these afflictions and difficulties and really look at power and how we use power and misuse power and what it what is what are we talking about when we talk about power and i think too as you know maybe we'll talk about this more you'd mentioned this at the beginning i mean i'm a scholar and a practitioner and i'm so grateful for the initiations that i've received that i do work with a an incredible yogini adept who's from Bihar, who does not want to be in the public, who doesn't even want to be named, and um, has, you know, taught me and our sangha so much about this path and these goddesses are actually fields of consciousness. You know, a lot of times they're approached as archetypes. They're not archetypes. <laughs> these are living fields of, mm. of reality with a capital R, and they have different bobs in different moods different expressions different characteristics and we work with them with always with the aim of liberation liberation from samsara from the bonds you know of these habitual thoughts patterns suffering but it's not only for our own liberation but the liberation for all and um so it's very mixed i mean it's just the way obviously the world works that here suddenly these goddesses are getting a lot of attention but it is misused and i think it also can be misused by women in a way of i'm a goddess you're a goddess that means i can do whatever i want i can treat everyone men included in this way that's not what we're talking about here yeah. with these goddesses and female empowerment how do we hold that power how do we relate with others you know that you know not only other humans regardless of sex or gender but also with the natural world with the environment and so forth mm, yeah so it's what you i want to go back to something you just said because i i i'm really interested in in a, a little more detail on this the difference between seeing these as archetypes which you know you're right this is very common kind of refrain you know these are all archetypes they're metaphors blah 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 but what is the difference between engaging with these as archetypes versus what you're offering so maybe you can like unpack a little more what what we mean by archetype and why that is sort of a wrong-headed approach <clears throat> There's something to me, um, just in the way that it's been presented, they're presented as archetypes, it doesn't give them or honor them in their full potency or power as, you know, expressions of the absolute mm. consciousness. Yeah. And there's some ways to, hmm, how do I say this? Well, let me just speak of, of more from my own experience of them. So as fields of consciousness, if I'm interacting with Durga as a field of consciousness, there are 
certain experiences that come with that. But I don't necessarily want to define it or limit it to those experiences, but we know that it will have some resonance with um, power, you know, our, our internal sense of power, expressing this power with strength, with confidence, with courage, with really confronting fears, both on an everyday personal level to even a more existential level. Um, even if we take Kali, for example, so Kali is both um, feared and respected, but sometimes I've seen others, you know, kind of approach her in a way if they want to, I don't know how to, how to, how to say this, but um, it's just interesting to watch this dance, for example, with Kali. And there's a lot of times people say, oh, no, no, I don't want to work with Kali because she's going to take everything away from me. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, okay, but let's look at, let's talk about attachments. Let's talk about what you're afraid of having taken away and what really is the larger view. What is really Kali about? She's not here. She's not a punishing mother. She's not going to take away everything unless there's, it's not ours to have anymore. Or if there's some growth or some lesson, there's such a way that we deny in this culture, or there's an overemphasis on the bliss and the, you know, it's all love and light in a lot of these circles, which it's, it's wonderful, especially when we have, there is so much suffering and so much, you know, violence or struggle that we have places like that, but in a way that it's spiritually bypassing the greater reality of honoring what this so-called darkness is and really reclaiming the dark in a sense of it's the mysterious, it's the, it's this unknown power, it's, it's Ma as, you know, in her fecundity, it's a mystery, the great yeah. mystery. And so it's like the way that maybe people are choosing or we're, we're taught to choose, oh, okay, I'm going to work with this archetype because she's quote-unquote safe. But no, no, I'm not going to go in this territory with Kali because I don't want to let go of my privilege or I don't want to let go of this position because my mind is telling me that makes me someone. I'm attached to that identity. Yeah. And with really, if we're looking at Kali, she helps us go beyond that and asks, you know, what is real? What is illusion? What are our delusions? Why am I attached to presenting myself in this particular identity? What do I think I'm going to gain? And really, why am I here? What is it that I um, am exploring or fulfilling? Or what is, what is my path to embody? And of course, again, this goes back to this is not a path for everyone and it's um in my own experience it really hasn't even been a path of choice yes of course there's choices on it but just my own experiences that led me here it was a deeper calling and definitely a feeling of, of dharma which i really resisted too because of the the challenges with it but um but again, to say that the Divine Mother, even though she has these fierce and wrathful and often terrifying uh, forms, really, you know, we need to ask, well, who is terrified? What part of me is terrified? And what is so terrifying? She's not punishing. She's not there to hurt us. It's always there for our greater um, evolution or transformation or um, healing. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad you said that about Kali because I've always been I've always been moved and called towards Kali, but I I you encounter a lot I feel like a kind of very superstitious 
attitude yeah. about her. Like she, if she's in your house, you know, you're going to get hit by a car or something. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, so, uh, so anyway, I'm glad you sort of pointed out uh, that. And also I think, you know, when you move into some of the, the Shakta lineages, you can see Kali as, as, as more expansive than this kind of reductive way of thinking about her, which I think is maybe more characteristic of kind of, popular Hinduism's conception oh. rather than what the some of the tantric traditions are saying. Exactly. A more dualistic even in that approach of, you know, she's the bad, the, you know, the mean, scary mother. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, and just looking at her iconography, you'd asked about that there. It's to the initiated or those that really, you know, have worked with her, or have received the teachings, you know, authentic teachings. We know you know, yeah, that, that that skirt of severed arms means something different than it just being a bunch of arms. It, you know, refers to Chordama, you know, or there's even the corpses. There is, an, there is an understanding of the inevitability of death and our mortality. And a lot of these practices also are structured around that, yeah. you know, too. <clears throat> so she's ultimately, you know, in my experience, I love this mother. She is the divine mother. She is the, the love that comes from this mother is like nothing I've ever experienced. It's very humbling. She's she's awesome in, in so many ways. And she's such, I mean, she's everything. She's this great force, not something to be reduced to, yeah, the devilish, you know, depictions of her that are so, are so feared or where, where people are holding at arm's length. Now, am I right that um, in the story when Kali um, destroys the demons, she's a manifestation of Durga, is that correct? Yep. Mm -hmm. okay. I mean, there's, of course, different lineages and looking back to, you know, she's the ancient wild tribal indigenous goddess of the forest. Um, what's interesting about Kali, too, of all of the goddesses in the more orthodox pantheon, I'm talking outside of you know, the tantric lineages, she seems to have retained her earlier wild, untamable um, essence. You know, she's that force within all of us, within the world that cannot be tamed, that cannot be subdued. We can try and marginalize her, send her out to the periphery, but, she, you know, she she remains. And while these other goddesses, they, and this is something I explored in my book, too, Lakshmi, yes, her presence in the Orthodox tradition seems to be... Um, were spousified or domesticated. That's a, a term coined by, I think it was um, John Strawley, or uh, if I'm, I'm saying his, his name correctly. But there's been, you know, scholars looking at her or Sarasvati in the way that these deities, in their appearance, it's like they've had their, their wings are clipped. They're not allowed to express the fullness of their power because we have such a fear of the unknown. We have such a fear of destruction or death or even illness i mean my own experience with my with illness was such a deep teaching you know in some of the shakta lineages there's this view that if you're ill you're possessed by the goddess that she brings the illness she is the illness and she removes it and it is an experience of uh, an alternate uh, consciousness and again, that's where we have to watch what our judgments are, how we're interpreting what that means. And yes, it is very challenging, especially when there's extreme physical, mental, emotional suffering. But yet there's an opportunity to move through those, um, that suffering, that pain into um, a deeper understanding or an expansion of consciousness that goes beyond the limitations of this physical body and in this world is more inclusive. 
So you had mentioned a little bit ago um, the Brahmanical tradition, and uh, in your book you distinguish between two cultures, the patriarchal Brahmanical tradition and the matriarchal goddess-centered tradition. So I I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the history of these two streams and, and maybe how the patriarchal mode became central. Oh, it's such a large question. I don't know if I can answer that. Okay. Uh, I can answer that, but um, talk about the streams. So, or maybe I, maybe more maybe just more a little bit more information about how the Brahmanical is a patriarchal kind of stream. Okay. Um, give me a moment to think about this. So if you think of these, or, you know, just in looking at the, looking at the oral traditions, and of course, if these are oral traditions, these earlier oral traditions, so not much has been recorded or written down, or just some of the folk practices, indigenous practices, not only in in South Asia, which we still, there's, there's so much, um, more research that needs to be done in terms of the, you know, archaeology and really looking at what these earlier civilizations were like. We even see within the Saraswati Valley civilization or the Indus Valley civilization. Are you familiar with that culture? Mm-hmm. Um, again, evidence that does of of what seems to be more female-centered beliefs, or there is more of. Um, a predominance of female figurines, hundreds, literally hundreds that are found there, these seal stones. It's very disputed, of course, even the language um, presented on these or the script that's presented on these seal stones. But it does seem to speak to different values. Mm. And that point, though, it's a, it's a turning point, though, too. I think there um, in that period around 3500 BCE, but if you go back even earlier, in either direction that you go, you do find these civilizations, again, that don't have evidence of weapons or fortification or highly sophisticated in their expression of art and so forth. And yet there was a switch, there is a change, and there's different theories on you know how that came about and in the different regions of um, you know where, how and, and where and when. But just to speak to this Brahmanization or Sanskritization, which you had asked me about, um, that is a term that's coined by, uh, I first heard it from the director of Asian Studies, Dr. Jim Ryan, but it was coined by a scholar, um, I think it was his his name was M.N. Srinivas. And it's just speaking to the way that the indigenous, the folk cultures, these agrarian, ancient agrarian cultures got assimilated into another fold, this Brahmanic fold. And of course, that ties into the whole caste system and um, and even the ways that a, women were excluded from a lot of the practices and traditions. Here you have a language that was taught by men, predominantly Brahmin men, to other men and you know, even rituals where women are not allowed to participate or just by not even being educated to be literate to be part of that. So there, I mean, even there's some that have uh, interpreted the Devi Mahatmya myth, this myth of Durga, as a confrontation between the indigenous goddess, more goddess-centered, loving um, peoples and another culture that had come in, um, 
so of course there's a lot more research that that needs to be done but there is, there is a distinction in the values or the way the role of the the female the presentation of the female um that we find between these two streams I find this this topic of Sanskritization really interesting because um, because on on one level I totally understand historically why this makes sense, but on the other hand I just feel kind of conflicted because I have kind of you know personally a sort of budding love affair with Sanskrit and I I'm yeah, beginning too. to study it more deeply and I and I love the language and I think it's beautiful and I'm I'm very attracted to kind of the the more esoteric streams of tantra that focus on kind of the linguistic mysticism. Um, of Sanskrit, so so I'm kind of curious, you know, and th these that linguistic mysticism exists, you know. Um, so I'm thinking of like the twelve Kali's and and, and different Shakta lineages. So it, when it, we get to those kind of obviously Shakta streams that are kind of but still that are very much um, connected in their in the practices to a kind of, um, you know, this linguistic mysticism that is rooted in Sanskrit. I mean, what, what are, how are we, we to disentangle these two um, influences? That's a great question. That's something that I'm exploring myself because I too am, am, have received these practices and I'm fascinated, you know, with the Sanskrit practices and that are, I mean, just fascinating and yeah. they're sophisticated and their power, the potency, and it is a question, okay, when did this come about? And what does this, you know, what does this mean around who who does have access to these practices or even historically had access or that they are um, accessible to, you know, even some of us in the West, but also even, you know, where also they re relevant in South Asia today. So no, I agree there. I mean, it's definitely something that needs much more explanation or exploration and um, trying to understand it myself and even looking at the Vedas from a different perspective too, you know, of, of looking for the feminine, the goddess there and the value of that. And a lot has come through my teacher now just in having this female teacher to interpret it in, through a different lens. Mm. Not just seeing the other lens, but it's been particularly useful. But it's nothing that I can really speak to uh, confidently yet. Yeah. So it's not. It's not. And but it's not that you're necessarily um, aligned with kind of um, a rejection of Sanskrit altogether, no, or like. I think it's such an incredible, powerful, beautiful language. But just looking as a scholar yeah. historically, or especially the influences of when I was writing my book or working on my master's thesis, there was a lot of um, you just seeing just seeing the way that the that patriarch. I mean, we've only lived within five the past five thousand years underneath this patriarchal, you know, yeah. st structure, and that there is a whole other. <laughs> You know, other social systems that were there and existed for thousands of years, even longer. And so what happened and why? But then again, if we take the view that she is everything and this is all her play, then also have to open into, okay, well, then she wanted this turn and into patriarchy for whatever reason that is. So it is always very paradoxical. It isn't easy to reconcile. And I think that's also part for me, what of the fascination and mystery too, or just even looking at my own position or assumptions or judgment and then having experiences that really take me beyond, mm. you know, the limitations of my own scholarship yeah. and, uh, 
beliefs. Yeah, I like the way, that way of looking at it. So y- your book is partly structured around a pilgrimage that you did to Nepal in which you attended the Durga Puja. Um, so what is the Durga Puja and what is its role in um, Indian culture? Um, or Nepal, so this- I'm sorry, Nepali, ne- Nepal's culture. Yeah, and we could say it's in South Asia. I mean, of course, there's regional differences everywhere, right, but sure. ultimately, this is an ancient festival that I didn't include this in, in the book, but that I was looking at the symbols of goddess tracing back to at least the Sarasvati Valley civilization. And I'm actually involved in another collaborative project with uh, two feminist spirituality scholars, Vicki Noble and Miriam Robbins Dexter, where we're going back even further in, along Central Asia and even into, you know, what we call the Danube River civilization to show the persistence of devotion of these, of the, of the goddess, of the divine mother for thousands and thousands of years, which still show up in this festival. What's interesting, it's a nine-day festival. It happens every fall um, around the time of the fall equinox, always starts on the dark moon, and it's a time of celebrating on a agricultural level, you know, honoring the seasons, honoring the cycles, honoring the harvest and the fruits that have come forth. And as the peoples are preparing for the winter, you know, coming winter season. Um, On another level, it's a way to reenact, to participate in this greater myth, the the Devi Mahatmya myth. Also, um, it's known as the Chandi Puff that actually I believe comes from Bengal, the recitation of Chandi. Chandi is another one of her names as she takes this form as Chandi, Chandika, Chamunda. She, you know, these fierce emanations of the Divine Mother who is, you know, Durga, who's called on to fight these demons, to bring balance and justice back in the world. And it's an opportunity on a personal level to really take it, you know, inventory of, of Maybe not only what we've produced, what we've created in the last year, but really what still do we need to be confronting within ourselves and the ways that we're not living in harmony or um, respectfully within our own family systems, within our communities, within the culture or the world. And so there are, you know, depend, there's, there's all sorts of different ways to approach from just uh, creating an altar for those nine days and, and worshiping the mother in her three maha forms as Kali, you know, this, this great mother of transformation, destruction, power, birth, Mahalakshmi, mm-hmm. um, for the fruitful sustenance aspects of her expression then Mahasarasvati, the spiritual fruits of knowledge and and wisdom and they're all ultimately expressions of her mm. uh, and different rituals are performed it's very you know it's incredible to experience it in nepal because it's one of the few places in the Kathmandu valley that still celebrates all nine days other parts of south asia will do maybe emphasize the last five days because we even see in the myth that's when the battle is the fiercest. That's when when Durga really has to take on these demons and they're just relentless. And um, it's an opportunity just to be looking at the mind, the way that the mind works, you know, the way that our negative thoughts, you know, feed each other, proliferate and create more and more, you know, 
so-called demons in our lives, more obstacles, more difficulties, and what is necessary, what kind of approach is needed to be stopping that, the, in this inner turmoil, these, these conditioned beliefs and, and so forth. So depending on what kind of practitioner you know you are, or it's definitely an opportunity for the families, community to come together. It is a celebration um, of, I mean, of community too. But women do have a prominent place that are they're gifted. All these beautiful, you know, red saris or the combs or the bindi that, that have this significance um, to our to what I would call female power, to the reproductive cycle or to the menstrual cycle that can be traced back thousands of years. And it's just maybe more hidden or maybe it's not out as out in the open, but there is a way of, of just honoring our cyclical existence and participation in a greater way at this time. And that it happens every autumn and it's been happening for thousands of years is, is fascinating to me. Wow. Do you want to talk about maybe a couple experiences you had during that, uh, during the Durga Puja? And, and is it, you know, it's, I understand it's a celebration, but are there specific practices? Do you do different kinds of practices every day? Like what is the kind of structure of sadhana that's related to this um, festival or celebration? That's a great question. Um, Personally, this is something that I teach um, and have received, you know, initiations into an authorization from a couple of different teachers teaching the Chandipat, teaching the text, the recitation of that text and um, as a way to, you know, uh, worship, a way to participate in the festival and where you would be, you know, reciting different chapters on different days, reflecting on different um aspects of your own experience or your own struggles or um, conditioned beliefs. And so part of it would be, you know, sitting, whether you're there in Nepal or you're at home sitting at your altar performing these practices. And again, this is what I, I offer in something I call the Chandi seminars. Mm. But on another level, just being at these sites is just every day going on the, you know, to the different temples on the first day. It's known as the installation of the sacred vessel, and this is happening both in people's homes, but also at the temples where a priest or priestess, nowadays you do see the priestesses there too, calling in Durga and asking her to reside in this womb pot, in the Kalasha, again the symbol of the Yoni. Mm. And she takes her place in that pot is worshipped. Seeds are planted around the pot for the barley plant, the Jamara plant. And they're tended to, sung to, the Chandipat is recited to, the, the Kalasha to the seeds, any other murti or representations of the divine on the altar. And every day, whether it's the family is doing it or maybe they're hiring, sometimes people will hire a priest or a priestess to be doing the um, full recitation for them. And... Um, and then going and visiting the different temples. So going to different Kali temples on the first three days, but not only limited to those first three days, but those are specifically the days where we're looking at the more, the denser tamasic energies, you know, our shortcomings, the habits we need to let go of. And just you going to these beautiful ancient sites, temples and shrines and offering her back, offering her rice, offering her flowers, offering her you know, coconut, um, and asking her to, to show us, you know, 
maybe where we have been out of line or alignment with our power or where we haven't remembered her or honored her, honored those around us. And the beauty and power for me, what has been so exciting at these sites is the longevity of worship that there's a stone I'm kneeling in front of and there's, you know, for over 2000 years, people have been going not only during the festival, but regularly and worshiping it as Ma, as the Divine Mother. And there's energy there. It's electrifying. Things happen. The mind can stop. Like, it's, you know, to be able to sit and just have all of that chatter, even if it's a second, is so incredible to have that experience. And then to witness others connecting with her in that way. Of course, it's not perfect. There's still, there's obviously... You know, westernization, globalization has had really devastating effects. Often, you know, in the last few years when I've gone there, a lot of the younger people aren't participating in the rituals in the way that they used to. And, you know, things are really out of balance. And there's more crime, there's more violence. And there's a lack of, of, of meaning, you know, just that I find overall affects us when we're not um, able to connect or participate in that way. So... Mm. Many there's just many different ways of working with it, and even you know not don't even have to travel there. Of course, there's more potency, but just honoring that or just attuning yourself um, to these larger cycles and to these traditions and rituals that have been celebrated for thousands of years, and really inquiring in. Okay, well, why would this be meaningful for me, and how would this be a benefit not only for me but for my community, for the planet itself? Because really, at the core, this ritual is about balance mm. and equality and justice and peace mm. and stop the violence and bloodshed and disrespect to you know to the earth to her creatures and to especially to women mm. Mm. wow well that sounds like we could all use a little bit of that uh durga puja in our lives so you said it's in the in the fall is it has it already taken place or is it yeah. is it it's just finished yeah just finished. there's actually for a year it depends on which lineage you're, you're looking at but the two main ones for Durga um, are in the fall, it's her biggest one, and then again in the spring. I see. Okay. So given what we've talked about, we've covered a lot of really interesting topics, and um, and I wanted to give you an opportunity, maybe um, if there's anything that came up for you sort of over the course of our conversation that you wanted to share, or something that would help kind of wrap things up based on what we've talked about, and then, and then I'd love to hear a little bit about what you're kind of getting up to these days, and, and we can sort of end on that note. Let's see. <clears throat> I mean, I feel very complete for now. I don't know if there's anything. Well, else. what about maybe maybe just asking the question? So, if I'm a listener and I and I and I'd like to cultivate a relationship with the divine feminine in some way, and and I recognize that there are so many manifestations, there's so many, I, there's so much iconography, and obviously, you know. You, your book is partial to Durga, and so that would be one thing. But how does someone approach that? I mean, do they sort of pick an image that they resonate with, or do they pick an image that they that challenges them? I mean, what is what is the criteria for kind of connecting with some um, representation of the Divine Mother? That's a great question. 
So, I mean, she's everything. She appears in, in so many different forms. I mean, there's, you know, when you said, is it, do they pick an image that resonates? I say, yes. Do they pick an image that's more challenging? Yes. Both. <laughs> uh, if there's, and also to look for displays, meaning synchronicities or these divine displays or has, you know, Durga, does that name keep coming up to you? Or every time you hear it in a class, is it like, huh, there's, you're curious. It's just tapping into something or maybe... You know, I've had students that have had dreams and had not even known who Durga was and reach out to me. Maybe you're having a dream and there's a name in your dream or um, you are attracted to an image. Or, you know, if you're just curious, look to your own background, look at your own racial, ethnic background. You can find her there. Look to the roots of your ancestors. Who were they worshipping? You know, within Judeo-Christian, but even going earlier beyond that and um so i mean really she is everywhere there's a wealth of of material uh, incredible scholarship that has come out of these programs um at california institute of integral studies and former programs at new college of california institute of transpersonal psychology that um you could find you know a lot of re reliable sources what i find so fascinating of course i'm partial to this but that here is a living tradition that we're not um speculating that there are um teachers within different lineages there are we have you know the scholarship to rely on but we also have practices to engage in to really have an experience of of who she is within ourselves and, and on a simple way though too like let's say that turns you off and you don't want to be within a tradition or it's like i'm not interested in learning sanskrit or chanting in sanskrit or anything that's related to south asia but just ask her just ask her to show herself to you then show me come to me in a form that i can relate to mm. please appear to me ma please let me have an experience of you that's the most important thing because you know we're so bombarded with so much information and told what to yeah. think or not that let me have an experience of yeah. you yeah. and then when you have an experience like okay show me more you know i'm i am your child i don't get it or you know i don't I, i need more i need to experience it more and also you can say but be gentle we'll see what she does but also just to kind of because that can be scary to open up to something so unknown especially yeah. when it's so foreign yeah. but this is ultimately i mean she's neither benevolent or terrified like exclusively but this is a loving force we could this is love with a capital L like she is unconditional love that in this absolute form that comes through more relative forms appearances and regardless of which culture or tradition mm, mm, such a great note to end on well Laura this has been a really beautiful conversation and um, so I just want to end asking you about any projects that you have coming up that the um, listeners might be interested in where people can find you workshops courses anything like that Excellent. Thank you. Um, you can find information on my website, which is lauraamazzoni.com, L-A-U-R-A-A-M-A-Z-Z-O-N-E. Um, in the spring, I have a Chandi seminar series coming up again, which is we're going into the teachings of Durga and um, the Chandi part, um, more from a sadhana perspective. Mm -hmm. But I also have other offerings, online courses. I have a course right now running called 32 Days of Durga. 
just to allow you to get familiar with what is she, what, you know, what are the offerings, what does this mean you worship her on this day, what is her iconography, why would this be useful and relevant to me, you know, in, in these times. And I also offer pilgrimages to Nepal, I'm going in the spring and I'll be going next fall for Navratri and that information is on my website as well. So. Excellent, excellent. Well, thank you so much, Laura, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you, Jake, very much for having me. Jai Ma.